2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure, or be disturbed, either by a spirit, or a message, or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction." who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know now what restrains him, so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of His mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of His coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. Father, as we continue to talk about the rapture of the church, as we continue to consider these very immediate prophetic uh, implications, I ask that you will touch our hearts in such a way that we don't just fill up on information this morning. I pray, Lord, that the revelation of the Scriptures by Your Spirit will become, Father, for us a motivating force in our lives. That however much time we have before us, it will be time well spent for the sake of the Gospel and not for the sake of selfishness. For the sake of Your Kingdom and and not, Lord, for the sake of our own living. For we recognize that this life is temporary. And all the things that we have, they're, they're just material things, Lord. I ask that you will focus us on what is spiritual and what is everlasting and what is true. With the help of your Holy Spirit, we ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. One of my favorite memories, and I've shared it with many of you personally, I may even have shared it just in teaching. One of my favorite memories of my daughter Hannah when she was five years old happened when we bought her a little powder blue Cinderella dress. We got it at the Disney store. I mean, it was legit. It was the dress that Cinderella herself had once worn. And (laughs) Hannah put this thing on and Hannah became Cinderella. Not a little girl dressed up like Cinderella. She had a name for herself. She called herself Big Huge Pretty Cinderella. (laughs) Big, huge, pretty Cinderella, because of course she was pretty, she was Cinderella, but big, huge, because she wasn't just a kid playing the part. No, she was the real deal. She was the adult Cinderella. Big, huge, pretty Cinderella. She called herself this. We would just crack up. And she got upset with us. We would call her to dinner, or ask her to come do something. Hannah, you need to clean your room. I'm not Hannah, I'm big, huge, pretty Cinderella. She would say. First and second Thessalonians are the big, huge, pretty Cinderella's of all the letters of Paul. 
And they are because among all these letters, so few scholars will invite them to the ball. So few scholars will take the time to study and write commentary and seek to understand First and Second Thessalonians. At least until about the 80s or 90s of the late 20th century, finally then commentaries on First Thessalonians began to flourish a little bit more. You can find a scholarly study on it. But still not much the case. There are a handful of, of studies out there on Second Thessalonians, but not many. And even for those commentaries, those study guides on the second letter, even though they're out there, they're pretty thin. And they don't deal well with 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Especially the 12 verses that we already read this morning. They end up ignored, left to so much cinder and soot. Not taken seriously, not focused on. Why is that? I began to look into this because it, it, it bothered me. Why so many great commentaries on Romans, you know, Galatians. You want to study Galatians? Oh, that's one of the prime letters of Paul, the scholars will tell you. Romans is such an amazing doctrinal treatise of Paul, the scholars will say. But Second Thessalonians is just a tiny little letter. Besides, it says some bizarre things. You see, the same way the book of Daniel is discounted by critics, the same way the book of Revelation is written off by so many who say it's just hard to understand, the prophetic language of 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is so precise, so exact, that scholars don't know what to do with it. I would simply suggest they just take it at face value. You see, nearly a third of the Bible, fully 27% of all of the Bible is prophecy. Did you know that? A huge amount of the Bible is the prophetic scriptures. Speaking of things yet future. Speaking of things legitimately and precisely. Being prophetic. To take a position that any of that is unnecessary, you might as well throw out the whole thing. Without this circa A.D. 49, A.D. 50 letter of Paul, without this, we would be left, as it were, standing there holding one glass slipper, not sure what to do with ourselves. This book is vital, and, and it connects in the prophecies of Daniel, prophecies of John and Revelation, prophecies of Jesus in the Gospels. In a marvelous way, it is, it is one more piece to the puzzle that explains to us and helps us understand what God wants us to know. You see, Paul said all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. 2 Timothy 3.16 Peter said, 2 Peter 1.20 Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is of one's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Okay, you might say. Let's accept that for a moment. How do we know 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is prophetic? How do we know that this is legitimate Bible prophecy? And I would ask you, well, how do we know that any of the Bible prophecy is prophetically accurate? How do we know any of it is true? And having studied through it, we begin to see it's both external and internal in terms of the evidence. And the evidence for the prophetic scriptures is overwhelming. The amount of prophecy, prophecies given and fulfilled, prophecies given to be fulfilled. And by the way, note this, all of the prophecies having been fulfilled, specifically in Jesus' life, 
over 300 fulfilled in Jesus' first coming were all fulfilled literally. I know I've said this before, but get this. 30 literal pieces of silver were paid out for the betrayal of Jesus. The nails that went through His hands and pierced His hands for our transgressions were literal nails. The birth was literal. The ministry was literal. The things that Jesus endured and went through, the resurrection, all literally fulfilled in Jesus' first coming. So that should tell us something about the prophecies of His second coming. There is no reason to accept anything other than a literal fulfillment of all the prophecies dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ. It's going to happen as the Bible says. It is going to happen. We have external evidence, we have internal evidence. What do you mean by internal? I mean that the the Bible supports itself. That what you read written about over here is never an obscure thought left to itself. It's always supported by something written over here or something written back here. That the letters support the letters. That the books support the books. God's Word supports God's Word. He repeats Himself often so that we can understand and so that we can be assured that what He is saying is legitimate. 2 Thessalonians is diminutive, but it's dynamic. This little letter is pithy, but it is prophetically potent. In just three brief chapters, and specifically in chapter 2, we see a precise link-up. Again, with the prophecies of Daniel, as I will show you. Prophecies in Revelation. Prophecies in the Gospel. For anyone who's ever been concerned about missing the royal ball... That is the marriage banquet of the Lamb as described in Revelation 19. Listen up, play, pay close attention. 2 Thessalonians is absolutely essential study. Now, we've been looking at the rapture of the church. I, I've actually entitled this rapture. It should be rapture part three because this is the third time that we have looked at and been considering in the last several Sundays the rapture of the church. I hope you understand this is all building. We're, we're building a body of evidence, as it were. If you were in a courtroom and you were hearing evidence on a case, trying a case, you wouldn't hear all the evidence in one sitting. You'd hear it in one sitting and then the next day you come back to court and you'd hear some more. And it would all be laid out. And then as a jury, you go into the jury room and you weigh through and sift through all the evidence. I hope you're doing that. I hope you sift through the evidence. And if there's anything I share with you this morning that you're unsure about, I'll try to point out we already talked about this in the last two weeks. And if you're unsure, go back and listen. Follow it up. These are things we ought to know as Jesus' followers. This idea of the rapture of the church, it still amazes me that it is not pervasive in Christian theology. That some look at it as kind of a fringe idea. Maybe you're one of those. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're going, oh, rapture, yeah, yeah, I know some of you guys, you Tim LaHaye left behind people. Maybe some of those weird Calvary Chapel people, they always talk about the rapture, those Chuck Smithites, you know. Listen, the reason that I believe and teach a rapture of the church, a pre-tribulation rapture of the church, is because the biblical evidence and teaching for it is overwhelming. We've already seen a lot of it. There is even more for us to understand this morning. But let's be clear exactly what the rapture is in and of itself. The Bible uses the word rapture, but never calls it the rapture. It just describes the event in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we, that is those who are alive, will be changed. 
Instantaneously. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 52. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. The Lord Himself would descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. And it is, again, an event, an instantaneous happening. Even though the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first and then we will rise after them, it happens so quickly that it really doesn't matter who gets there first. But it's this marvelous event of the rapture of the church, that is, followers, believers in Jesus Christ, whether they've died or are living, caught up in an instant to be with the Lord. It's a wonderful teaching. And it's not a fairy tale. But some people miss it. Oh, maybe not the event of the rapture, but they miss the teaching or the understanding. Right now, as we open up 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, understand the position of the Thessalonian church when they received this letter from Paul was they thought they missed it. They were beginning to wonder, did the rapture already happen? Because they felt like they had been thrust into tribulation. The afflictions, the persecution of just being a follower of Jesus in Thessalonica in the first century was intense. We talked about Wednesday. Why would anybody want to believe something that automatically meant persecution and affliction for them? Well, because it's true. Because it's simply true. It'd be like you persecuting me because I believe Mount Baker is a mountain in Washington State. How can I not believe that? I see it every day. How can I not accept that as legitimate as reality? So they believed in Jesus. They were giving their lives to Jesus, this Thessalonian church. And they were being intensely persecuted for it. And so Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, Now we request, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. The day of the Lord. As one commentator wrote, and I quoted previously, when God intervenes in history to judge His enemies, deliver His people, and establish His kingdom. The day of the Lord. And we looked at on a recent Wednesday night, kind of like the Jewish day, the Yom in, in Judaism begins in the evening. And then runs through to the next morning and then on to the next evening. So the day of the Lord begins in the darkness of tribulation. Runs through that long night, that seven year night of tribulation. And then morning dawns with the coming of the millennial kingdom. And then evening comes as final judgment rounds that whole thing out. The day of the Lord. The Bible talks about the day of the Lord and encompasses all of that. But we are promised, we are guaranteed by the Scriptures that the rapture of the church comes first. It must come first. Note how immediately Paul distinguishes between two aspects of the second coming of Jesus. Remember last week I shared with you, I grew up with the idea that there was just kind of the second coming. It just kind of is going to happen. What does it look like? We don't know. We just know it's going to happen. You know, just being... Pro-millennial. Whatever. I don't have a physician. I didn't never have, I, I didn't have one. Many people don't in the church today. They say, well, I know that Jesus is going to return kind of in a vague idea of returning. No, Paul divides it here very clearly. He says, 
We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That's two things. That's not just one event. And what Paul is reminding them of in the teaching he had already given them is there are two things that are going to happen. One is we're going to be gathered to Him. And the other is that the Lord Jesus is going to return. And the Bible is clear on that. We've been looking at those things. The coming of our Lord Jesus. That is His glorious return to rule and reign on the earth. I know some would say, well, that sounds kind of Jehovah's Witnessy. Ruling and reigning on the earth. Please understand that if Jesus doesn't return and establish His kingdom, the kingdom of God, out of Jerusalem, ruling and reigning from the throne in Jerusalem for a thousand years, if He doesn't do that, then God is a liar. Because the weight of the prophetic scriptures of the coming kingdom that have not been fulfilled in the Hebrew scriptures is huge. The answer I was given as a kid growing up was, well, that's because God's through with the Jew. They blew it, so He doesn't have to keep that promise anymore. The problem is God didn't make the promise contingent on Israel. He just made the promise. So if God doesn't follow through with the kingdom prophecies, and you can read and study them, just read the entire last part of Ezekiel, chapter 40 through 48, and tell me when that's happened. If it hasn't happened, and it has not, then it either must happen or God is a liar. Those are the only two options. The kingdom, my friends, is coming. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4, Jesus will set foot on the Mount of Olives. And He will establish from that point forward that that kingdom reign. That promise is coming. Guaranteed. That is the glorious return of Jesus to establish His kingdom. And Paul says that uh, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he also says, our gathering together to Him. That's the rapture of the church. Because there is a gathering. A heavenly gathering. Not on the Mount of Olives, but in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as we've been talking about. Two very distinct aspects of one same coming. The rapture of the church. Could happen before I'm done this morning. I heard an amen. The rapture of the church is the most exciting, amazing, wonderful, supernatural teaching, I think, in all the scriptures. I've gone back to it again and again to rethink it and re- Am I right on this? Because it's just so fantastic to be caught up. Man, beam me up, Scotty. You know, up we go. It's such a wonderful teaching that even those of the first century church needed the comfort of its certainty. They needed it to be repeated. They needed to hear it more and more. And so I believe do we in these days. And so Paul says in verse 2, he says, Don't be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or message or letter from us, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Don't be disturbed. Don't freak out. Don't be quickly shaken. Don't lose your composure. That word composure in the Greek is literally yourself. Meaning what? Meaning kind of a presence of mind. Don't be shaken from yourself. And don't, don't lose your, your thinking. Calm down. The word disturbed, this is an interesting word because we have a direct English word that we take right from it. In the Greek it's throeo. 
throweo. It's where we get our word throws. The throes of pain, the throes of anguish, the throes of worry or doubt or fear. And throweo means to be frightened or alarmed. Paul says, don't be alarmed. Don't worry. What alarms you this morning? Globally, there's an awful lot we could be worried about. As the rhetoric continues to heat up with the DPRK or DRPK or whatever, North Korea... Threats targeting Guam. We have our missiles trained on Guam, says Kim Jong-un, however you say his name. We have nuclear capabilities, he says. Don't mess with us, says North Korea. And so President Trump's been in contact, you know, with the governor of Guam. They've been talking about these things, preparing. Our president has been saying, fire and fury if you touch us, if you mess with any of our territories. And a lot of people are concerned. Hey, I live on the West Coast. I get it. You know, I've looked at maps. Maybe you've done this too. Just looking at the news and watching what's going on with North Korea. Have you looked at maps to see where their missile range is? Those of you in the Navy, are you thinking you may be deploying sooner than you thought? Are we worried? Are we alarmed? Are we concerned? Secretary of State Rex Tillerson said, the American people should sleep well at night. Why? Because world leaders are sleeping so well or or perhaps because they're so wide awake? I'd sleep a lot better if they were awake. Psalm 121 tells us, He will not allow our foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Tell you what, part of the reason I have my composure is because I know God is wide awake. And God has His eyes on everything happening in this world. Don't be rattled by great world events taking place, but also personally. Are you you losing your composure because of something happening in your family? Or at work? Are are you kind of off-center right now because you're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day or the day after that? You've got uncertainties that you're dealing with? You know what I love about the Gospel? It is always good. It's good news. It's always good news. The gospel is never not good news. It's never bad. Paul quotes Isaiah 52 verse 7 in Romans 10.15 saying, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of what? Terror, horror, fear, and bad stuff. No, good news of good things. Because the good news is always good news. That's the joy of the gospel. It is not the news of the throes of tribulation. And Paul is reminding the people in Thessalonica, look, I didn't teach you that this is for you. Did I? I taught you the good news. Yes, you're going through hard times. Yes, there is affliction. But in your afflictions, Paul tells the church at Thessalonica, don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. He says either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And that is the impetus of this little letter. That right there is why why Paul was uh, motivated to write in the first place. Remember this, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wrath is not for you. That is not in God's plan for the people of Jesus. 
That's what Paul says, Thessalonians, yes, you're in affliction. Yes, you're facing hard times. But word on the street there was the tribulation was already underway. Already in progress. They missed the rapture. And Paul says, not so. And it's interesting, by the way, how he points out this deception. He says, either by a letter, a message, or a spirit. Most commentators think a letter was circulating that was a forgery. That was saying, the day of the Lord has come and you are in it. And in this letter, apparently it was signed, forged, with the name Paul. Or perhaps Timothy, or maybe my grandson, Silas. It's my grandson's name. Perhaps someone has written this letter and this, uh, what I call Wednesday night, it's like a, a document dump on Thessalonica. Greeky leaks. And they're reading this stuff and thinking, oh no, maybe, maybe it's a letter, maybe it's a message. That is, perhaps someone in the church is spreading word that this has happened, that the rapture's done and we are going into hard times now. Maybe it was a prophetic utterance. I don't know, someone in in a prayer meeting said, by the word of the Lord, we are in the tribulation. And then everybody's like, wait, whoa, whoa, what, what? By the word of the Lord? Can I encourage you, if someone says I have a word from the Lord for you, test it. Test it. Just because someone opens their mouth and offers a message and declares it's in God's name does not mean it is. This word is. And yes, God does speak to His people through His people. So I'm not undermining or questioning whether or not a brother or sister can have a word from Jesus for me. It's just whenever I hear that, I test it. I look at what the Scriptures say. Is it biblical what they're sharing? Does it sound like Jesus? Is it godly? And Paul's saying, someone's spreading a message here, and it ain't from me, and it certainly ain't from the Lord. Then he also uses this word. He says, don't be disturbed by a spirit. A spirit? What do you mean, Paul? Perhaps a demonic spirit that was upsetting people? That was implying things or, or, or deceiving? I mean, hey, this could be either demonic or human. This could just be a human spirit. We're a bunch of spirits in the room here. You got that, don't you? We're all spirits. We just have to be spirits in the material world. Thank you, the police. We're spirits in flesh, spirits in body. Our spirit is who we are. And so perhaps the spirit he's talking about was just a a human being or beings running around sharing things that were not true. Or maybe it was truly a demonic spirit that was trying to confuse the doctrine, the theology of the people there at Thessalonica. There have always been deceptive spirits. In fact, as I've watched in my lifetime, I have seen a vast increase of demonic deception in America today. The Satanic Temple is an American political activist group and religious organization based in Salem, Massachusetts. Listen to this. The group utilizes Satanic imagery to promote egalitarianism, social justice, and the separation of church and state. Their stated mission, this is the satanic temple. What would you think? I mean, if I were reading an article, the stated mission of the satanic temple, I would think blood, gore, disease, and death would be good. Would would fit that paradigm, right? Listen to their stated mission. Quote, to encourage benevolence and empathy among all people. 
Brothers and sisters, it is a demonic lie. And some who involve themselves in this satanic temple, because they're atheistic, because they think that religion is the problem in the world, some are deceived. Thinking, yeah, yeah, we'll use this this emblem of evil, and, and that will be kind of our symbol of humanity and compassion. And it is deception. Well, that's a little harsh of you, Rick. Well, look, anything connected to Satan is deception. Anything represented by him or representative of him is deception. It's all a lie. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him, Jesus said. John 8, 44. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. Someone comes to you in the name of Satan, deception is at the core. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. John says, Children... It is the last hour, and just as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that this is the last hour. Many Antichrists, he says. In fact, 1 John 2.22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. And the closer we get to seeing or to the coming of the Son, Christ Jesus, the greater the efforts of the deceiver, the deceptive spirits, and those who themselves are deceived. Be alert and be aware of that. There is great deception in the world. And so John says, 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. Deceivers always overplay their hand. Ultimately, deceivers always out themselves. They always go one lie too far. It always comes back to bite them. Their sin is always discovered. Numbers 32, verse 23, Be sure your sin will find you out. And may that be a lesson to us. Sin is self-betraying. When I sin and I think I can get away with it, it will not happen that way. I will be betrayed by the very sin I commit. It's going to come right back around and get me. But the greatest attempt to deceive the world is also, get this, clear evidence that the day of the Lord is on. The greatest mass deception that will have ever taken place in history will prove the fact that the day of the Lord is already three and a half years in. And Paul says as much in the letter, verse 3, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Two prophetic happenings I want you to know about this morning. Two that Paul describes that we need to grasp, and the first is the apostasy. The apostasy comes first. And then what I would call the abomination. So we're going to look at it that way, the abomination and the apostasy. And I'm going to take them in reverse order like that. First I want to look at the abomination, and then we'll consider the apostasy in just a moment. The abomination. The abomination is described this way, the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship. 
so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. That is the abomination. In fact, the Bible terms it that way. It calls it the abomination of desolation. Paul is describing here an event that is yet future. When the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, is revealed. Okay, first off, who's the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction? Antichrist. Antichrist. Oh, you're going to talk about the Antichrist stuff. Okay, left behind. Set aside the left behind books. Let's just go straight to Scripture here. Antichrist, the Antichrist spirit, the spirit of Antichrist. This has been talked about. Antichrist is also called the beast in the Scriptures. In Daniel, he's called the little horn. He is named, he is pointed out, he is described many times. And, well, the beast, that's been fodder for a lot of horror flicks, hasn't it? Antichrist and the 666. Listen, Revelation 13, 18 says the following. Here is wisdom. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for the number is that of a man, and his number is 666. There's your wisdom. And you might hear that and go, where's my wisdom? What does that mean? The 666, it it, it terrifies people. You know, it's great in, in horror movies. What is this all about? Antichrist, very simply, will be a literal man. 666, what is that? It is the number of man. The number six is the number of man in the scriptures. Throughout the Bible, the number six is used when speaking of or talking about or describing just a person, a man, a woman, mankind. And the 666 means never arriving at seven. It's never getting there. Meaning what? Well, seven's the number of completion. 666 just describes someone who will never be complete. Describes an actual human being and talking about the beast... Though Paul is, or John there in Revelation 13 is using graphic descriptive language, he's talking about someone who is a specific human being and he wants to make that clear. 666. You could say .66 repeating. He never gets there, never finished, never perfected, always coming up short. What does the Bible tell us about Jesus? He is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the perfecter. He's the completer. And that is, if you give your life to Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus, the day is coming when you will be made complete. You get to seven. You don't remain in the sixes forever. Jesus is the finisher. And only, only in Jesus Christ will you ever realize the full reason for your life. I was talking to a sweet sister this last week who asked me that very question. Why are we here Why are we here? I'll give you the one word answer that's always the right answer. Jesus. And it is in Jesus and through Jesus and by Jesus that you will ever understand why you're here at all. If you cut Jesus out of the picture, you'll never get complete. Your life will never make sense. You will never arrive at the place that He has determined for you to arrive. Now, I believe in Jesus and I haven't arrived yet. I still have a lot of perfecting going on in my life. Trust me, lots of completion that needs to take place. But I know it will. And I have confidence in Him for that. Antichrist will never get there. Only in Jesus can a person get finished, be complete. 
You might remember, however, though we're talking about Antichrist as a person, this man of lawlessness, this son of destruction, John said many Antichrists have come, didn't he? That used to throw me. Brethren, you know, many Antichrists have appeared. So think about that. Is it true? Well, you can go back countless centuries and you can see people with the spirit of Antichrist. Spirit of Antichrist, what do you mean? I believe, and I think I can show you, that Antichrist is a demonic spirit. And has been around for centuries, and has been dispatched by Satan to fill people legitimately, specifically, for satanic purposes. What are you talking about, Rick? Well, go back to the days of Esther and a man named Haman, whose sole purpose was the annihilation of the Jewish people. I think Haman had an Antichrist spirit. How about Nero? Nero is a picture of a man who all he wanted to do was wipe out the followers of Jesus Christ. Haman, Nero, we could add names to that all the way down through the years. Men who are driven by evil for power, for, for position, and to destroy others, specifically people of God. It's an antichrist spirit at work. See, Satan doesn't know the, the day or the hour either, Right? And because he doesn't know the day or the hour, he has to have someone in position, a spirit, ready to go in every generation so that he can counter the work of God if Jesus should come at at some point in time. There was another person who uh, I believe was filled, in fact the Bible tells us, was filled with an Antichrist spirit in the days of Jesus. His name? Judas. Jesus, in praying in John 17, names Judas. He calls him the son of perdition, which is the exact same phrase, hohios hohapolia, that phrase, the son of perdition, the son of destruction, here that Paul uses. It's the only time in Paul's gospel or in Paul's letters that he uses the phrase, the son of, like this, the son of destruction. It is the same word, apolia, perdition. Same name that Jesus gave to Judas, now Paul gives to the man of lawlessness, Antichrist. Why? Because it was an Antichrist spirit that filled Judas and caused him to betray Jesus Christ. The son of perdition. The word also means waste. Son of waste. This son of perdition, this Antichrist character... This man of lawlessness will rise. When he rises, you know the tribulation is underway. That seven year period is now rolling once this guy comes to the forefront, once he rises. And Paul then goes on to describe an event. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. There is a moment which the Bible describes at the midpoint of the tribulation, at the midpoint of that seven-year period, three and a half years in, when Antichrist goes into the rebuilt temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God. And the Bible gives it a very specific name, the abomination of desolation. Keep your finger here in 2 Thessalonians and turn back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. We were there last week. It is key to all of this. In fact, the book of Daniel has been called the key to the book of Revelation. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27 are the very specific key that unlocks so much understanding that we now have today. Daniel chapter 9. 
in this chapter, Daniel writes some things that, that Bible scholars, ever since they were written, tried to understand and could not understand until we saw fulfilled history. And we're able to apply those things and now we know and now the time for Daniel to be unsealed and used is, is upon us. Watch this. Daniel chapter 9. Just look at verse 27. And I remind you of some things we've been talking about. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. He is Antichrist. He will make a firm covenant. That word covenant, it's a, a treaty of sorts. Some kind of agreement. Some have have thought maybe a peace treaty that Antichrist makes with the many. The many is specifically Israel here, but also could include the rest of the world. He'll make a covenant with the many for one week. Shavua is the word week. It's not a week. It is a period of seven. Okay, Shavua. Uh, Like we say dozen for twelve, we would say a heptad. A heptad is seven. And that word Shavuah in the Hebrew means a period of seven, and in this case it is a period of seven years. He will make, Antichrist will make a firm covenant with Israel for one week, for one seven-year period, but in the middle of the Shavuah, the week, that's three and a half years, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. So the temple has to be there. Right? Sacrifice and grain offering at this point are taking place. Temple must be built. Sacrifice is happening for this Antichrist to step in and shut it down and exalt himself. Goes on and says, And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. Even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. This abominable act, this atrocity in the temple of God would take place. And scholars throughout the centuries have looked at that and said, what is that meaning? Has it been fulfilled or will it yet be fulfilled? It's a great question. Skip on to chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11 verse 31. Forces from him will arise desecrate the sanctuary fortress and do away with the regular sacrifice. Oh, okay, we just read about that, right? And they will set up the abomination of desolation. By smooth words, he will turn to godlessness those who act wickedly toward the covenant. The covenant is the law of Moses. Wait a minute. So he's going to turn people who follow the law of Moses against it. Okay goes on and says, But the people who know their God will display strength and take action. Those who have insight among the people will give understanding to the many. Yet they will fall by the sword and by flame, by captivity and by plunder for many days. Now, when they fall, they will be granted a little help and will join with them in hypocrisy. Uh, Many will join with them in hypocrisy. Some of those who have insight will fall in order to refine, purge and to make them pure until the end time. So this happens before the end time, or until the end time, because it is still to come at the appointed time. Now, you need to understand something. In Daniel chapter 11, up to this point, through verse 34, Daniel prophesies something that we know happened. Something that took place in history. I'm talking about 168 B.C., and a crazy Greek Seleucid king by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. And we've talked about Antiochus before. This nut, 
came down and determined to, to do some damage in Jerusalem. He took control of Jerusalem. He went into the temple, threw out the priests, threw out, stopped all the sacrifices, exactly as described. He spattered pig's blood all over the inside of the Holy of Holies to make it uh, completely ruined. And he established there Jupiter worship. And so people look at that and say, oh, that's what Daniel was talking about. That's the abomination of desolation. That's what took place 168 years before Christ, prophecy fulfilled. Right? Read on. Verse 36. Then the king will do as he pleases, and he will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and will speak monstrous things against the god of gods, and he will prosper until, note this, the indignation is finished. For that which is decreed will be done. Wait, what? The indignation? Hey, if you were here last week, you may remember we talked about, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the indignation is the tribulation. Over and over, that that time of Jacob's distress, that seven-year tribulation period that has not happened, but now somehow it is tied to this event. What's going on? Skip down to chapter 12 and look at verse 1. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. Now at that time, Michael, remember the archangel Michael, The great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. This will be the worst distress ever to happen to Israel. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake these to everlasting life but others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Those who have insight will shine brightly like the brightness of the expanse of the heavens. Those who lead you or who lead the many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But as for you, Daniel, conceal these words and seal up the book until the end time. 168 B.C. was not the end time. So... Was the abomination of desolation something that Antiochus did in 168? Or is it something that's going to happen in the tribulation yet future? God allowed that abomination in 168 B.C. to take place as a picture, as a type of the one that is to come, the one that is yet future. How do we know that? Turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 15. Now Jesus is talking. Daniel very clearly called that incident, by the way, remember, the abomination of desolation. This picture of when this king comes into the temple and establishes himself and calls himself God. Watch this. Therefore, Jesus says, Matthew 24, 15, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through through Daniel the prophet, by the way, Jesus just legitimized Daniel as a legitimate actual prophet. For those Bible scholars who would discount Daniel, Jesus did not. He trusts and believed in the prophet as being a prophet of God. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. 
Then those who are in Judea must flee up to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down and get the things that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. Woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And I've told you that verse right there deletes anything that's happened to Israel prior. What happened in 168 was bad. What happened in AD 70 was worse. And so some say, oh, so the abomination of desolation is AD 70. No, because it didn't happen in AD 70. The temple was destroyed, but Titus did not go in and declare himself to be God. So the event was different in AD 70. But what happened to the Jews there was far worse than what happened to the Jews in 168. Go even further forward. What happened to the Jews in the Holocaust? Far worse than what happened in AD 70. And Jesus says, this this event, this abomination of desolation... This Antichrist character going in and declaring himself to be God in the temple will happen at a time that will be the worst time in all of history and there will never be another one like it. So I tell you, this is yet future. And Jesus said in verse 22, Unless those days have been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. And the elect is Israel. He's talking about Israel, not the church. How do you know that? Because the church is not here in the tribulation. You see what happens here when we, get, we begin to look at all of the Scripture. And we take all of the different teachings, all the prophecies, and we put them together. We're back in that jury room, and we're looking at all the evidence and piecing it together. Suddenly we realize the way things must be. The Bible is clear about it. God has given us His Word for just such a reason. You might say, well, why then? This, this past history is now, you're saying it's a picture of future prophecy. Exactly. That God allowed this previous atrocity, and then Jesus comes along and assures us himself that that's a picture of what is going to happen, but what's going to happen will be far worse. The abomination of desolation of Antichrist. Now go back to Second Thessalonians. That's what Paul's talking about. And he's saying, Church of Thessalonica, don't be dismayed. Don't freak out. Don't worry. Because the abomination of desolation and the revelation of Antichrist, that has to take place for the day of the Lord to be underway. Has it taken place, Thessalonians? To which they could all say, no, it hasn't. Is your life afflicted, persecuted, messed up, difficult? Perhaps it is. Has the abomination of desolation taken place? Then the day of the Lord is not underway. And Paul is telling them there at Thessalonica, don't worry, it's going to be alright. Let me make sure I've clarified this for you and we'll go on. At the midpoint of the tribulation period, Antichrist will enter the rebuilt Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He will cease all other sacrifices and He will declare Himself to be the one and only God. It will not be coexist in that day, by the way. All those bumper stickers will be thrown out. Because Antichrist is not going to stand up and go, yeah, it's me or whichever God you choose. He will say, no, it's me. And you worship me or nobody. Revelation 13 describes that in depth. 
And so that takes place. And that is the final abomination in that period of time that is unparalleled in all history, the worst point ever to happen. And when it happens again, it guarantees that the day of the Lord is already underway. Antichrist revealed. But before all that breaks loose, for the alarmed, for the worried, for the discomfited, Paul says the apostasy comes first. Note the language. He's very specific. Verse 3, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. The apostasy. Okay, I grew up using that word, going to church. If you were apostate, you stopped going to church. Apostasy was to fall away from faith, right? I mean, is that not how we understand the word apostasy? So we read it here and go, okay, Paul is trying to comfort the people and says, don't worry, it's all going to be good. The apostasy comes and then the mount of lawlessness is revealed. And that's how you know it's the day of the Lord. Well, that's not very encouraging, is it? I mean, think about it. Don't worry, Paul says to the Thessalonian Christians. Don't worry. It can only get worse. It's all downhill from here. Boy, you think it's bad now. You're really in for it. Be comforted. That just it doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. So what's he talking about? The English transliteration of this Greek word is apostasy. It is, we use it to someone who denounces their faith or someone who abandons their loyalty. But remember, Paul is writing to help the Thessalonians regain composure. He's writing to bring them comfort and encouragement. 1 Thessalonians 4.18 Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Okay, Rick, comfort one another with these words. Paul's talking about the rapture. What has this got to do with the rapture? The apostasy is the rapture. What? Okay, i got to get technical with you. The apostasy. The King James translation of verse 3 is, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there be a falling away first. But is Paul talking about the church falling into heresy? Or is he talking about something else altogether? The apostasy, however, he says, comes first. Okay, get this. Ho-apostasia is the Greek. Ho is the definite article, the. Get that. Remember this. The apostasy. This is not a generic thing like people gradually falling off. This is an event that he's talking about. So even for those who say the apostasy here, if they translate it heresy, they're talking about an event. Which would mean that if it's a heresy, it has to be an event, a moment in time, when everybody just falls away. It would be as if on a Sunday morning, every last one of us in here stood up, shook our hands at God, rebelled, and walked out the door. That would be the apostasy. At least for the bridge, right? Remember that. Hold on to that thought for just a moment. Ho is the, the apostasy. And then apostasy is two words in the Greek. Apostasia. Apo is the word from. Stasia means to stand. Apostasia means from where I stand. That is to go from this place to that place. From where I stand. In its noun form, 
And this is part of the reason that people think, okay, apostasy means a heresy. It's a falling away. In the noun form in the scriptures, apostasia is only used two times in the New Testament. One of the times is right here by Paul. The other time is in Acts 21.21, where Paul is being accused of causing Jewish people to leave, to depart from, to fall from Moses to this new teaching. So he, they are leaving the new teaching, or the old teaching, and going to a new one. They're, they're leaving Moses. They're, they're apostatizing, if you will. They're falling from Moses to go to this new teaching. Where they stood was with Moses. Now they're standing with Jesus. And that's, that's the way the word is used in Acts 21 21. Again, apostasia, only used twice. Now, if you go back in all of the Greek literature, it can mean, yes, it can mean to depart from one's faith or loyalty. But it can also be translated to depart from one's location. And both are used in ancient Greek literature. In 1 uh, Timothy 4.1, Paul explicitly says that they will fall from the faith. Listen to this. The Spirit explicitly says in the latter times some will fall away from the faith. And that's a, a verb form of the word apostasia. I'll tell you more about that in a second. But in that verb form, fall away from the faith, it's interesting, Paul doesn't say, in latter times some will fall away. He says, in latter times some will fall away, and then he adds, from the faith. They will leave, and then he talks about what they're going to leave. But here he doesn't do that. He just says that the day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first. Until... The apostasia. Until the departure, if you will. But let me give you more on this. In the noun form, it's apostasia. In the verb form, it's aphistomai. It's the same word, it's just spelled differently if you're using it as a noun or a, or a, a verb. In the verb form, it's used 15 times in the New Testament. The same word, which can be translated to leave or to depart. Out of those 15 times it's used, three have to do with someone leaving their faith. Twelve have to do with someone just departing. Just leaving. From one geographical location to another. Let me give you two examples. Acts chapter 12, verse 10. Peter has just been in prison and finds himself out. If you know the story, the angel comes as the church is praying. Peter's in prison. The angel comes and releases him Peter thinks he's in a dream. He's walking through the prison. Doors are opening right and left. He's like, wow, this is weird. And all of a sudden, he's in the street. Gets a whiff of that that cool Jerusalem air. Realizes this isn't a dream. He's wide awake. And he's with an angel. And the Bible says he follows the angel down through many streets. And then the angel aphistomize. That is, departs. Leaves him. Same word. That's how it's used. In another place, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8. Paul is talking about his thorn in the side. That, that issue that was given to him, that problem that's been bugging him and it's on him. And, and, and he says, man, I, I prayed three times. I implored the Lord that it might leave me. Aphistomai, apostasia. That the thorn would depart. That's how the word is used. So, staying with me on this. I believe that the apostasia here is referring to the departure of the church. Because, my friends, everything we have taught and seen so far tells us that the church must depart first. The apostasia, if you will, the leaving, the departure, the moving from one place to another, from here to there, from where I stand to where I fly. 
That's got to happen first. And once that happens, then, then the man of lawlessness will be revealed. Then the day of the Lord will happen. But it will not happen until the church has already been taken out. And that is a comforting word. That's an encouraging reality. That's what Paul has been saying through 1 Thessalonians and now on into 2 Thessalonians. And it is consistent with the teaching of both Paul, John, Jesus, the prophets, apostasia. Kenneth Wiest, one of the foremost Greek scholars of the 20th century, wrote about this word in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, the apostasia, the apostasy. He wrote, first and foremost, it means a geographical departure. How about going back to the first seven translations of the Bible that were written? In the first seven translations, every single one translated this word departure. It will not happen until the departure happens first, and then the man of lawlessness is revealed. The first seven translations, the Wycliffe translation in 1384, the Tyndale in 1526, the Cloverdale in 1535, the Cranmer in 1539, the Breaches Bible in 1578, the Beza Bible in 1583, and finally, the Geneva Bible, the Bible the pilgrims used who came across to found America, the Geneva Bible in 1608, all read unless the departure comes first. That's a comforting word. That is a great encouragement. And the context indicates this is not talking about falling, a falling away of faith. It's talking about a falling away from the earth. It's talking about a departure from here. It's the departure of the church because it must take place before the tribulation, before the day of the Lord, before Antichrist is revealed. Are you with me? (laughs) I think some are going, it's the rapture of the church. And I am fully convinced of this. We're almost done, but look at verse 5. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? Paul is here reminding them of something he had already taught them when he was there in Thessalonica. He already taught them about this whole body of eschatology, this this end-time teaching about the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord and the coming of Jesus. He already laid all this out. So now he's saying, remember? Do you remember what I told you? The apostasy, the departure, comes first. And then the man of lawlessness is revealed. He makes that covenant with Israel. Then the tribulation gets underway. That's the day of the Lord. But you will not be here. Go back now to what he said. Ho, apostasia. That definite article. That instant event. Not a slow drizzle. Now we talk about the the rapture. We always use the word the when we talk about the rapture. We don't say, you know, a generic rapture is going to happen, that, you know, next week uh, one of us is going to go out of here, and then the next week maybe a couple more will, will take off, and then the week after that maybe we'll be sitting three feet above our chairs, but it's kind of a slow process, you know. No, we understand the rapture of the church is in an instant. It's an event. The apostasia. He's talking about an event. He's not talking about the slow loss of faith in the church in the last days. Hey, we know that's happening. 
We know that there is a falling from faith even taking place in the church. We know that there's a weakening. We know that in the last times, 1 Timothy 3, 1 Timothy 4, difficult days will come. We know that people want to hear, have things that tickle their ears rather than listening to the truth of the Word of God. We get all that. But Paul's not talking about this generic thing that will happen kind of to individuals here and there across the board toward the end of time. He's talking about the departure. The leaving. That moment of leaving that takes place. It's an instantaneous event. And so again, we say the rapture, though the Bible never says that. You realize that in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul doesn't say the rapture. He just uses the word rapture, the word harpazo, to say that we're going to be caught up. This is the only place in Scripture where the is applied to departure as an event, even though in 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul describes the event. In 1 Corinthians 15, he describes the event. But here, he says to the Thessalonians who would know this teaching, remember, remember, The departure must come first. It's got to happen first. So in the context of what Paul is teaching, the apostasia, the departure, is an event he had already taught them about. It is not a disturbing heresy to come. It is a comforting, encouraging departure. It is the rapture. And if we were to translate apostasia as a mass rebellion from the truth, explain this to me. Why does it have to happen before Antichrist comes? Think about that question. I mean, isn't Antichrist the one who is going to lead people into rebellion anyway? Why does there have to be a mass rebellion first and then the man of lawlessness is revealed? If he's talking, and I believe he is, about the departure of the church, the rapture of the church taking place first, well then that absolutely has to happen before Antichrist comes. Why? We'll talk about that next week. Turning your Bibles to Matthew 24. We'll end there. Matthew 24. I want to end on this because as a young man, I I remember for the first time hearing about the rapture, and I thought it was nuts. I really did. I had friends who went to a couple of different church fellowships, clearly not the right ones, who taught about the rapture. And I just thought, oh, they're just so weird. That's just weird. And the Left Behind books came out, and I thought, that's just weird. And I remember thinking, you know, if, if, I, if I could find it in the teachings of Jesus, then I might believe it, which is really dumb. Because all the teachings of Scripture are Spirit-inspired, which means the entire Bible, this is the teaching of Jesus. So if it's not in the red letters, it doesn't mean it's not the teaching of Jesus. But I wanted red letters. I was looking for him to say it. Just to kind of kick the door open so then I could accept the teachings of Paul and and others about this idea of rapture. If there really is a rapture. And then I found it. I was so excited. Matthew chapter 24, verse 40. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. And I'm like, that's it! The rapture of the church in the red letters. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We're going home. And then someone pointed out to me the two verses preceding this and really, really harshed my mellow. You know? Really bummed me out. 
Look at verse 38. As in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there will also be uh, two men in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. And two women grinding at the mill and one will be taken and one will be left. And this person said to me, see, just like the flood destroyed people, he's talking about people being taken off into judgment. That's not about the rapture of the church. And I went, man. And if you've studied these things, you know. This is why we need to study to show ourselves approved, to understand the Scriptures as spoken. Because the word that is used, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all the way, is a hero in the Greek. And that word means to cease to exist until the flood came and wiped them out. But in verse 40, Jesus uses a different word. And there will be two men in the field and one will be taken and one will be left. And taken there and taken in verse 41 is paralambano, which means to receive unto himself. Which means to be taken with, brought along with. One is a ceasing. There will be, as with the flood, in the coming of the Lord. That is the second coming, the glorious appearing. There will be a mass moment where people in rebellion are wiped out. They are a hero. They are caused to cease. But the rapture of the church, that's another thing. That is a paralambano. That is a being received unto. Jesus did talk about the rapture. As did Paul, as did Peter, as did John, as did the prophets Isaiah and others. Paralambano, to receive unto or to take with. Harpazo, to seize away or to catch up. The apostasia, a departure from where I now stand. All of these speak of great comfort and amazing assurance. Amen? So do not be shaken from your composure, Cinderella. Your prince is coming. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word to us. And I pray that it is comforting and encouraging. And supportive yet again, Father, as Your Word is so amazing to do. Supportive of this line of reasoning, this literal understanding of prophecies of what's coming. But Father, again, we are not here this morning simply to feel better or or to gain more composure. We are here this morning for two reasons, Father. The saints are here. Christians are here to be equipped. That we might understand these things and we would have a word of comfort. That we would have good news to share with a very lost and broken and hurting world. Good news to our friends and family that they don't need to be worried. They don't need to be fearful. All they need is Jesus. And that's the first person, Father. We need to be equipped with these things. But the second person, Lord, is the person among us today who does not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or perhaps has never given their life to Jesus. And it's for that person I pray right now that, Lord, there will be an awakening in heart and spirit, that the truth of Your Word, very solid, very reasonable, very understandable, would open wide our hearts, all of our hearts, but especially the hearts of those who who don't believe, who don't accept Jesus as Lord. That today would be the day 
And Father, that You would then use those of us equipped to continue to bring the Gospel, the message of good news, into a lost and dying world. In Jesus' name, Amen. Please come. Let's stand and sing together. Thank you.